0: Church if you have your Bible or your favorite app will be in 2nd Peter th- uh, 1 jump to the verses. 2nd Peter 1 It's towards the end of your Bible. 2nd Peter 1 will be in verses 3 through 8. Sorry, 3 through 9 this morning. 2nd Peter 1 3 through 9. If you found your spot, let's stand for the reading of Christ's word. And I know I say this often, but may we truly hear what the word of Christ has for us this morning. Here's what Peter writes. His divine power, this is God, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Verse 5 For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self control, and to self control, perseverance For your word this morning how it is inspired so that we might be fed and as we're reminded by Paul to Timothy that this, these scriptures are sufficient to build us up in the things of the faith that we would be not unproductive but productive in our faith that we would be built up and established on a foundation that has been set with certainty by Christ your son And so, Lord, as you begin speaking, may we open our ears and our hearts to the word that you have for us. May we feast on your word. May we be enriched and encouraged and strengthened by your word this morning. Lord, speak. We offer these things in the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure you've either seen this episode or seen a snippet or possibly even heard about this episode, uh, Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart, I'm not sure if it was the actual show that he had years ago or if it was some sort of spoof that came out of that show, but there's this famous episode where Bob Newhart plays this psychologist. And this lady walks in and they sit down and he says, you know, I don't take, um, I don't take, payment beyond five minutes and she said what are you what are you talking about uh, I, well i'm willing to bet this is going to just take five minutes and the lady said that, you know that's fine well she sits down and he said okay what's what's the problem clock starts now well i have this thought that it just cripples me that i will be buried in a box bob newart says okay nope So what else is it? Well, when I walk into places that are more like boxes, I feel like I'm being stifled. Uh, Things are just closing in on me. He said, well, it sounds like you have claustrophobia. She's like, yeah, that's it. Well, he said, I have two words for you. And she tries to pull out a pen. He said, no, 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 that's not necessary. It's just two words. I think you can get it. She said, okay, what are they? He leans forward over his desk and he says... Stop it. Stop it. And she replies kind of shockingly. What do you mean s- stop it? Well, you have these thoughts about being buried in a box. Stop it. And he looks down and he says, well, it's been three minutes. Is anything else? She said, well, I'd like to get my at least $5 worth. Okay, what else? What other problems do you have? Well, I'm bulimic. Stop it. Well, what about those bad choices in men that I can sometimes have? Stop it. And so that ends that time in which she is sitting across the desk from the psychologist Bob Newhart, and he tells her each time to stop all of these bad choices that she's made in order to get over them. It's a comedic three and a half, four minutes But I can assure you that that's not the counsel I have for you this morning. Hopefully, I don't come across as yelling, stop it. But all of this, I think, in the entire month of November, as it relates to these spiritual disciplines that we're going to look through, that we are going to realize that we're going to have much of our hearts and our habits exposed to Christ And we're going to realize that sometimes we want to reply to ourselves, just stop it. But church, that is not very effective. And it doesn't have, I think, the right goals in mind once it comes to the spiritual disciplines. And and I know when I say that word discipline, that 10-letter word, it's pretty scary and terrifying, isn't it? Because when we think of discipline, we usually have negative connotations and meanings attached to it. We might think of paddles and switches once it relates to discipline. But that's just one meaning as it relates to discipline. That's not the meaning that I have in mind. I'm specifically trying to bring us into the spiritual disciplines that are related to something closer to exercising. And scripture has much to say about exercising the spiritual disciplines of Christ. Now, let me ask you a few questions. It's a simple yes or no. Not very hard. Will a boxer be able to contend against the best in the world if he does not train? No. Will an Olympian be able to compete if she does not train? No. Will a baseball player be able to hit if he does not go to batting practice? Probably not. Not as well as he should. Will a college student be able to graduate if she doesn't go to class? No. Sometimes, right? Just enough? Then why don't we think of the calling as a Christian in a similar way? Because there are plenty of times, not only here in the passage of Peter, but plenty of times that Paul mentions that exercising ourselves in the habits of Christ actually does build us into a growing and enduring faith. They love the metaphor of exercise. They love talking about how this habit is built up in the ways of Jesus and allowing Jesus to work in and through those in order to set us on a path that you are racing towards the end. The writers love that metaphor. I've had several Christians approach me over the years and have this concern about themselves, and it's a rightful concern. They will say this, I'm not growing in my faith. Why? To which I usually respond, what are you doing to grow? In all seriousness, what are are you doing to grow? And the response to that question is usually this. One, well, I thought God is the only actor in my salvation, and he's the only one that grows me and matures me. And here's another concern that I hear in response to that is, well, isn't effort opposed to grace? Isn't effort opposed to grace? I mean, we are taught that we can't use all the effort we have in order to receive God's grace. He's not going to love us anymore no matter how hard we try, right? Isn't that opposed to grace? Well, I think Peter has much to say in response to both of these kinds of concerns that we hear or we might even ask of ourselves in our own growing faith or maybe a faith that tries to stir, that tries to grow, but we're not sure quite how. So let's look at that. Let's look from verse 3 um, on down to verse 9 to see what Peter has to say. Verse 3, Peter writes this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. I think Peter here is answering one of the concerns we just mentioned about salvation and growing. And here's the concern. And hear my voice in this, but I think this is Peter's concern as well, is that we need to put away and get rid of the belief that salvation is is merely that one-time single event in which we come to Christ. Church, that's just the start of a marathon that we're running. Salvation is the start of that growing event in which we are slowly molded and shaped into the very likeness of Christ. Because we have this tendency to treat salvation like this. Receive this ticket, now you're done. Receive this ticket, now you're done, now go and live as you please. That can completely break down somebody's maturing in the things of Christ. But what if it was more like this? How would you like to take this never-ending, wild, adventurous journey with a king? What if we started asking the church that? Instead of, here's a salvation, now go do as you please. No, no, no. How would you like to take this never-ending, wild, and adventurous journey with this king? Salvation is not a ticket for us to go and stand outside of the forest. We don't get a ticket to go and look at it. Salvation is pictured throughout the New Testament, and certainly the Old Testament, is about a travel through the forest with the one who made the forest to touch the foliage of the trees ourselves, to smell the scents of the wilderness, to hear the wildlife rummaging through it, to discover the joy and awe of it all. And as you take this venture with this forest maker himself, he teaches you about the forest complexities. He teaches you and I about how to courageously walk in the midst of these forests of life, and also even how to compassionately steward Force in a way that we are growing in the riches of his mercy and his grace. I think that's Peter's concern when he's writing these verses three through nine of the first chapter of his letter, because he says, God has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. This isn't just a future life even though that's a part of the salvation that we've received, a future life with this king. But Peter doesn't want the church to be a spectator of godliness. He doesn't, church. He doesn't want us to be a spectator of godliness. Now go and watch all these other people. He's not after that. He says, well, I want you to be a traveler who is journeying into godliness. But one question we have to ask is, how are we equipped to take such a journey? As one writer puts it as, it as it pertains to verses 5 through 7 here, he writes this It is because of the gifts and promises, the glory and the virtue of Jesus, that believers are making every effort to add to their faith the list of virtues that you have in verses 5 through 7. Because of Jesus' accomplished glory on the cross and the resurrection, the church can receive the Spirit. In order to grow in the riches of his grace, does that make sense? That we have received his spirit because of Christ's finished work, that we can then go and be like Christ and be made into the likeness of Christ through these virtues that, that Peter's about to explain in verses five through seven. But before he gets to the list of virtues, Peter tells the church make every effort to add to our faith. I think we can look at that verse and completely uh, misunderstand it because we're thinking, oh, no, he's saying we're supposed to add to our faith. Well, that word in the Greek, some of your translations might say supply to your faith. Some of them might even say furnish or produce. I think they're all healthy translations of what the Greek word is after. But I think his point is this, to strengthen your faith or to beautify your faith Put on these virtues of Jesus in your daily lives. Put them on like a jacket, a shirt, so that everybody looks and sees what you're clothed in. Let me offer an illustration. We need to continuously remind ourselves of this truth every single day, church. Jesus has already established the faith. He's already perfected the faith itself. He has firmly built us a house of faith, and that house cannot be plundered. That house cannot be destroyed because Jesus is the builder. He is the perfecter. He's the architect of this faith. Yet the house can be beautified, it can be adorned with new furniture, eye catching curtains, or maybe even that Valspar Soulful Gray. He picked up immediately. He thinks he's at work now. All of these things can make the house pop. It can beautify the house. Peter isn't telling the church you need to go and perfect the faith that Jesus tried to perfect. He's not saying that. He's saying Jesus has perfected the faith. Now he invites us to furnish. He invites us to this firmly established and sure faith in order to beautify it with virtuous living. I think that's what he's after in these verses. But how, excuse me, what virtues beautify and furnish the faith? Well, he gives us a list, thankfully. Verses 6-7, through seven, he says this, Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. But before a We deal with this list. I think we need to travel back up to verse 3 in order to really set ourselves in what is most important. The main point that Paul, excuse me, that Peter keeps driving to these churches is this. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Church, I think we can all agree on some important truths as it relates to farming. That the Nutrients. Assuming the soil beneath our feet already has the nutrients, it already has the energy, and it has all the minerals necessary in order for the corn, the wheat, the flowers, that whatever it is that we are planting, that it can grow and thrive. It's already there. The faith by which you live is only accelerated and magnified because of the work of Christ. He gives us the nutrients the nourishment that we need. The soil is already fertile. Now we have to plant ourselves in his eternal power, glory, and goodness, as Peter says. So let's tie it back into verse 5 now. Peter invites us to take advantage of this power, glory, and goodness. Not take advantage in the sense of exploit the work of Jesus, but rather to enjoy and to experience the promises that have already been gifted to us. So his power, glory, and goodness are there for us so that we can supply and add to our faith by practicing these virtues. But we need to keep in mind, and this helps answer the question and the concern that somebody might come up and say, well, I I thought God is the only actor in my salvation, that God is the only one that matures and grows me. Yes, he's the main actor, but he invites us into this story as well. It's a both and. It's not just God and I'm not in there. It's both God and me working together so that we can grow in the faith that Christ has firmly established. But how do we grow? How do I practice these virtues? Have you ever asked that question? I understand what's being said right here, but how do I do this? How do I practice goodness? Or moral excellence, you could translate it as, how do you Grow in knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. Let me go ahead and remind us real quick. Ross, Bo, you go to hitting practice. In order to grow as a hitter, do you use your bodies? Yeah, all of your body, in fact. George, go to the driving range. Do you use your body? Uh Uh-huh. And we feel it when we get older. We feel it more and more. Those in the medicine field, do you use your body in order to read an x ray? Yeah, you got to hold it. You got to look at it. You got to use your head. Or those of us who teach about a cell's molecular makeup or how to divide integers or dependent and independent clauses, do we use bodies? Yes, we do. Virtue requires bodies, church. Virtue requires bodies, and just like any discipline, they also require practice. So how can we train our bodies in virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love? I think this is where we start. As it relates to moral virtue or excellence. We can practice the moral excellence of Jesus. Jesus. And I think this comes in two ways. One, we can practice it by discipleship. Older men, we need you as younger men to disciple us in the ways of Jesus. And we younger men, we need to look down at our own children and, and, and nephews and say, let me show you the ways of Jesus. Women, these younger women need you. And then younger women, These little girls running around this church, they need you. Once it comes to discipleship, all we're saying is, will you come alongside me and work out this faith with me? And may we be discipled by our master, the teacher of it all, Jesus himself. Even Paul himself writes, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We need real life people in front of our lives in order to imitate as they imitate Christ. Here's another way that we can actually show forth this moral virtue, this goodness, this excellence. I think you can do this by befriending sinners, so really broken people, like really broken people in your lives. And it is through this that we allow, as Jesus says, your light to shine before men. And he goes on to say this, in Matthew 5, not just to let your light shine before men as if you're greater than them or more wonderful or more godly than them. No, no, no. That they would actually look at you and say, I want to glorify my Father in heaven because of what I have seen in and through you. So this virtue of goodness can be exemplified first in discipleship and then in the befriending of broken sinners. Next word that, the next virtue that Peter mentions is knowledge. This is a virtuous knowledge. It's connected to, of course, moral excellence that he just brought up in the same uh, verse. And how we understand this is that it could be understood as the opposite of ignorance that leads to vice or a broken living. In Peter's day, there was a very common understanding, especially in Greek philosophy, that virtue was a type of knowledge. And what was meant by this is that Socrates, for example, one of those Greek philosophers, would have said that all humans aim at a good or a set of goods. And two, another thing is that all human beings, if they do not know what is good, they cannot practice what is good. Not only do you aim at goods, but if you don't really know what is good, you cannot know how to practice what is good. And so I think Peter here is only taking that worldview of Greek philosophy and bringing Jesus into the equation of it. Because he understood that the greatest good was Jesus himself. And that when we set our lives towards him, Christ works in us not only to show us what is good, but to actually live out and embody that goodness in our everyday lives. What about self-control? Peter here is mentioning self-control as it relates to opposite of self-centeredness or this self-consuming behavior where you're only thinking about me, 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 me? Let's be transparent for a second, church. The world watches us a lot, all the time. They don't just watch what you say, or excuse me, they don't just listen to what you say, but they listen to how you said it. They don't just watch what you do, but they listen and, and try to figure out how you do those things. They don't just pay attention to your actions. They also pay attention to your attention, intentions as well. You are watched all the time. And as it relates to self-control, it's not just a control of what you say or how you say or what you do or how you do. I think self-control has a lot to do with giving control of yourself to Christ. Christ. As it relates to this passage of what Peter's bringing out, it is taking control by giving yourself to Christ. And allowing Him to control what decisions you make, what you say, how you say it, what you do and how you do it. That is a very difficult thing because at the end of the day, we are saying that we are not our own. But we belong in body and soul, both in life and death to God and it is exemplified perfectly through Christ. Well, if we're constantly giving ourselves over to Christ, I think we're embracing endurance, the next virtue that's listed, or perseverance, as your translations might say. Endurance in Scripture is this never letting go, it's never backing down on the promises of God. It's an acknowledgement that Christ is in full control of every minute of every molecule, of every single moment the world as we know it. And when we live into the mystery, but also how profound that is, we are letting ourselves go and saying, I can't control this moment, but you can, Christ. The last two virtues that are listed by Peter here are mutual affection and love. Mutual affection, or your translations might say something like brotherly kindness, These are the actions that are governing our relationships with one another. Don't think of brotherly as just a brother, but this is a word that in the Greek would have consisted of brother and sisterly kindness. And of course we know from the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that love is this self-denying, it is this self-giving sacrifice. Or as Jesus teaches in John 15, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his own friends. That's where you have both this sacrificial love with this brotherly and sisterly kindness right smack next to each other. The greatest act, I think, of brotherly and sisterly kindness is a sacrificial love that is lived out for them and with them. When these selfless acts of love govern our every relationship, we are, church, practicing the love of Jesus. And as we all know, the love of Jesus, it unites us to each other, it reconciles us to one another, but it also lifts our eyes to our Heavenly Father. Let's move to verses 8 and 9. He says this, If you possess these qualities, the ones that just mentioned, In increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you a parable this morning. Once there was a young boy who had everything he ever wanted or needed. His family was wealthy, their home was expensive, and it had all the latest and most attractive features of a modern home. The pantry was always full. It was never lacking in snacks, meals, or drinks. And this boy's parents were gentle, caring, and always committed to helping their son. But the son stole money from the father's secret drawer. He broke and trashed every single room of the house. He ate of the pantry without ever saying a thank you. But he also demanded more food when it was gone. And he intentionally disobeyed and broke numerous promises to his parents. Church, here is another answer that we mentioned at the beginning of today's sermon. And it comes from a quote by Dallas Willard. Grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It is by grace through faith that we are united with Christ and His saving and justifying work for us but it's also this same grace that sustains and nourishes the church in order to grow into the likeness of Christ. The young boy in the parable who had everything he needed and wanted, yet he always wanted others to meet his needs. He took full advantage of everybody else. Grace meets our needs and our wants. But we shouldn't abuse the unmerited grace that is extended to us. Nor should we fail to effortly and actively steward the virtues of Jesus that have been gifted to us. Grace is not opposed to effort. It sustains effort. It strengthens effort. But grace certainly is opposed to earning. You cannot buy the love of God. Impossible. But because of the love of God, you can be sustained and strengthened and equipped and trained in the virtues of Christ. So let's end with this. Let me give you both a caution and an invitation this morning. The goal of the spiritual disciplines is never the spiritual disciplines themselves. The goal isn't the spiritual disciplines. If we walk through this list that Peter has given us and say, How can I practice mutual affection? Just for the sake of mutual affection, we failed already. Because the goal is not these virtues. When we make this mistake, we make a God of the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are helpers. They are aids to enrich us in Jesus and also His ways. So listen closely. The spiritual disciplines are a means of connecting us to Christ while also regimenting and also directing our lives so that they might look like Jesus' life. Let me say that one more time. Spiritual disciplines are a means of connecting us with Christ while also regimenting and directing our lives so that they might look like Jesus' life. And you probably noticed, if you're watching closely, that I skipped over one of the virtues. It was on purpose, the virtue of godliness. I saved it for last because I, as I understand godliness, this is uh, an experiencing of the presence of God Himself. But it's also understanding that we stand right now in the very presence of Christ and what we're trying to figure out as the church is, how can I direct every square inch of my life towards this God godliness I would say is essentially worship because we're taking the riches of Jesus that have been given to us by grace and we're directing our entire lives towards him that's worship and worship yes church it requires effort worship requires effort but when we come here we're not saying I'm trying to earn your love God I'm not trying to do that. We don't come to earn his love. But we are here to bring forth our entire bodies as sacrifices and offerings and saying, work now in and through this time of worship. The God of the Scriptures has already earned our salvation, He did this work on our behalf. Yet it is from this salvation that we worship, that we practice godliness, that we learn how to lean into this God of grace, and we allow every area of our lives to be leveraged as an act of worship. So here's the invitation yes, add moral excellence, supply, furnish moral excellence, knowledge, self control, endurance. Mutual or brotherly and sisterly affection and the sacrificial love of Jesus into your daily living so that we can grow closer to Christ while also displaying to the world around us the humble life of Jesus but also the extravagant work of Christ through our bodies being disciplined by our Lord. So may we this week discipline our bodies In the grace and mercy of Christ that sustains, strengthens, nourishes, and equips us in that good work. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we have this day in order to, to be strengthened in your grace. In order to be drowned in your grace. And as much as it was... Truly a difficult sermon to work together and to weave together. Lord, you worked on me this week. And I cannot get away from that quote. I just can't. That grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. May that resound in us this week. As we truly do try our best to be disciplined, to exercise our bodies with self-control and mutual love and virtuous knowledge of who you are and the other of the list that Peter describes. But we we do this not just because and not to have the world look at us and see how great we are because if we do that, it's just a show. But rather we do it because It is an act of worship that we give back to you. It is an act of love that we direct toward you. And so, Lord, as you continue to teach us in the month of November of how we can be spiritually disciplined so that we can grow into the image and likeness of your Son, may you tear us apart and do it, as we always know, with grace. So that we can truly be made into the image of your resurrected son. Where we put to death sin in our own lives. Where we put to death the brokenness that continues to haunt us every day. Because at the end of the day we have to be reminded that grace restores. Grace puts back together And so, Lord, may you continue that work of grace in our lives. And may we also surrender ourselves to that work. We offer these things in the name of your Son. Amen.